Welcome to Invoking Witchcraft, the podcast where the sacred and profane come out to play. So call the quarters and set the round. It's time for another episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Invoking Witchcraft. My name is Jay Allen Cross, and I am here with my co-host... Britton Boyd, also known as Archaic Honey on the Instagram and the old Twitter machine. How are you doing, Jay? I, I am having an interesting morning. I will tell you that I am very ready to throw the entire internet in the trash. It is just how, uh, how it's going these days. No one's allowed to be happy anymore. No one is allowed to be right anymore or successful. Um, so, you know, it just may be time to just burn the whole thing down. Yes, I agree. We've had, it's been a weird morning with the internet and folks out there like being spicy, being kind of mean. It's just the way that it is. And yeah, kind of wish that we could just quit the internet. One day, one day it will happen. We will actually live the witch life and go out into a cottage in the middle of nowhere and speak to nobody. And it will right. Right. Yeah. In other news, we did introduce a new term this morning of gas bagging, which apparently um, comes from the UK and means either chit chat or gossip. So we were talking about gas bagging earlier. Yeah, I really love that gas bagging. That's kind of what we do here at the beginning of the show. There's also another word that I would like to publicly address on this podcast. Maybe we talked about it last week. I can't remember, but it's my use of the words and whatnot. (laughs) (laughs) I reviewed our last episode and I think I said and whatnot like a thousand times. So y'all, I'm aware of this problem and I am doing my very best to work on it. Um, So it's just like my fallback word when I don't know what else to say. Right. So since we are a, uh, a sober, positive podcast, if you're looking to be very hydrated, take a sip of water every time somebody says and whatnot on our podcast. Yes, you can play a sober drinking game. Right. They are ready to just pee everywhere. <laughs> yes. Pee on it. That's our Do running it. motto. That is. That's how we get down over here. Mm-hmm. All righty, y'all. So we're going to just dive straight into this. We have a fabulous and wonderful guest and a good friend here on the podcast, Peter Michael Bauer of Rewild Portland. And yeah, we just want to welcome Peter to the show because we're going to we've got a lot of ground to cover today. So this is going to be a two part episode. And uh, how you doing, Peter? I'm doing good. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. welcome. Having me. So we like to ask our guests two questions. Jay, do you want to start with the first one? Sure. So the first one we normally ask is, what is your astrology like? <laughs> you like your big three oh, or man, maybe your so, big one? <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I'm basically classic Aries, although I personally like reject astrology, but I, everybody is like, that's just so Aries of you. You know what I mean? Like to be combative in that way. But my, my chart is, you know, I was born uh, April 8th, 1982, 6 30 PM. And um, I've had so many friends like do my charts and stuff like that over the years and multiple different forms of astrology and stuff. And it, um, they're always just like, wow, this is fucking like describes you like to a T or whatever, you know what I mean? But basically, yeah, I, I think I'm, 
I've had people tell me, because the chart kind of bounces back and forth. It's a lot of Aries and a lot of Libra. And so they're like the polar opposites or whatever, right? The main reason why I, I object to some of the things is the way that I feel people have put me in a box due to that. You know, like one time I was in the middle of a of a heated conflict with somebody and it, <laughs> and they were like, what's your sign? Well, I want to know what your sign is. Like, they, and I knew that they actually already had researched it and like knew that I was an Aries, and they were going to try to say that that was the reason why we are in a conflict was because I was just you're an you Aries, know, confrontational or something, you know. What I mean? <laughs> and so I refused to tell them. I was like, that has nothing to do with this conversation, like, <laughs> um, right. you know. But it's just funny to me, like the um, that that I really do. Like every time I've looked in in all of the descriptions and stuff like that, it's definitely um you know i i fit it to a t so awesome well you're in good <laughs> you're in good company i know you know i'm also an aries but so is jay so we've got like this like awesome <laughs> this a lot of power amazing yes a lot of probably a lot of spice coming yes the trifecta awesome. <laughs> yeah that's great Love it. Yeah. Yeah. I know folks like to kind of box me into the Aries thing too. And I feel like for Aries folks, we don't like necessarily want confrontation. Like we don't go and seek it out. Um, but when it comes to like defending our stance, you know, mm -hmm. it, it could get a little elevated. <laughs> we're, we're just really, we're really yeah. passionate people. Totally. We're very passionate yeah. about what yes. we're about. So yeah, exactly. we're brave and we're passionate and that really scares people. And so they just call us confrontational. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. If that makes you feel better. Yeah. My mm -hmm. girlfriend is a Gemini and we we argue over who's the most hated sign. And then I have another <laughs> friend that's like a Scorpio that's like, no, no, no. Well, I'm the most hated or whatever. You know, it's just funny. Like the anyway. Yeah. Oh, my partner is a Gemini too. And yeah. the Geminis do tend to get like the shit into the stick when it comes to astrology. But mm -hmm. I love Gemini energy. So shout out to all of our Geminis mm -hmm. listening. We love you and we care for you. Geminis are amazing. They they really are. They're so dynamic. And I love how they just like they flow with the Aries energy too. It's like Aries has all the ideas and Gemini's like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I always admire their capacity to hold two things true that are opposites at the same mm -hmm. time. Like Gemini's like to say things like, um, I don't believe in ghosts, but I won't go into my attic because it's haunted. <laughs> yeah, <totally. laughs> and yeah. it's like, I don't get how you can exist there, yeah. but I applaud it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So Peter, our other question is, and it's kind of an, it's really open-ended is like, how do you identify it is a very good question. I'm actually writing a piece right now on rewilding and belonging. And a lot of it is, is related specifically to the question of like how a person identifies. And I, <laughs> I don't have an answer to that because I feel like I don't really identify with anything on mm -hmm. a large, on a large level. I actually feel kind of alien, even in my own body. Like I don't even, not alien, like, um, like extraterrestrial, but alien. Like I don't even necessarily feel human in this body. I feel like uh, some other thing that is inhabiting a human body. That's just kind of like, uh, here I am dealing with all the human shit. Right. <laughs> that I makes feel sense. That. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I feel that you know, I'm, externally, people have their own perceptions of my identity, 
And I tend to just identify with the classic markers that I know, you know, check the boxes that I know people are wanting me to check. So, you know, uh, white, male, American, lower middle class. I don't know if I'm middle class. I'm actually just probably on the poverty line at this point, but I was born into a, a middle class family uh, in the 1980s, you know. So I kind of have, you know, I, and I don't like the I don't like the term neurodivergent because I'm not divergent. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, I don't I don't like that framework. I think that I'm just uh, you know, I think the way that I think and that's just normal. I don't think that there's an or or the idea of normal and divergent or whatever is not something I'm interested in in classifying in any particular way. Although I'm not somebody who could participate in um, compulsory schooling. I did very poor in school, mm-hmm. even though I was in the quote unquote talented and gifted program, <laughs> which is just so funny. I hate all of the all of the labels and all of the words for everything. So if I could, I would just like to um you know, clean my slate of any kind of identitarianism and identify uh, as not even my name. I mean, I don't even identify with my name. Like I was just um, talking to another friend and I was I was talking about how I feel like I'm a performance artist at, at the core. And so everything I do is a, in a sense of performance art, even my name, like Peter Michael Bauer, that's just a that's just a character that I play, you know, um, that's not even really me, you know, um, just like urban scout was a character that I played. Um, and I have all these different characters, so I don't know what my real essence is or how I can even identify, but basically there's some sort of core that refuses to identify in any way. And then I just have thousands of masks that I wear. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And one, the one I'm wearing right now for the most part is Peter Michael Bauer. Right. Yeah. I think that's a really beautiful answer. And uh, yeah, you've got me, you know, thinking about the neurodivergent thing, because I myself am like ADHD bipolar too, which I hear they may be changing. I don't know exactly what it stands for, um, but they may be changing ADHD to VAST or something like that. Yeah, they're they're changing the name of it um, to be a little more all encompassing. But yeah, that's really interesting, like not identifying as divergent, uh, because I've kind of wrestled with that too. It's like, is that like an identity I want to claim? You know? So totally. yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of the word like deviant, deviancy, like the way that that sort of, um, you know, also carries negative connotations in a sense. And I feel like divergent or deviating from the quote unquote norm is just not something that I, I just think there is no norm. I think that we're all unique and we all have different complexities. And so to try to classify one thing, I mean, I get that the main reason that they say that is like people who can function in the one size fits all sort of lifestyle or society that we have. And if you don't function well within that, then you're quote unquote divergent or deviant or whatever. Right. Um, but I don't identify with that society as a norm or as the the dominant narrative of, of humanity and what mm-hmm. it means to be human. So if I don't identify with that, then I'm not going to use their terminology. If I was in, you know, again, if other people were classifying me based on their narratives, then yeah, they would probably classify me as something like neurodivergent. Um, 
I don't know if I have, I, I've never officially had a diagnosis of ADD or ADHD. Um, I was diagnosed with like clinical depression as a teen and was medicated with Prozac and other things um, so that I wouldn't kill myself. <laughs> and in the short term, those successfully, um, you know, prevented me from dying. But in the long run, um, you know, I was able to change my environment so much and just kind of embrace who I am and, and also learn a lot of techniques for managing my depression that have allowed me to um, flourish in other ways and, you know, um, not to, to be able to not uh, be stuck in that system. Because if I had to have gone through compulsory education, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be alive anymore if I had had to continue mm -hmm. going through it. That environment was just not conducive to me in any way. Um, so, you know, it, it's just, um, yeah, it's a lifelong sort of rejection of what are considered societal norms, but also a rejection of the society that created those norms. And so, you know, embracing humanity as a diverse and unique and, um, you know, just complex, always changing <laughs> creature reality. I don't even mm -hmm. necessarily think of myself as solely human either because when you start to look at the boundaries of what makes somebody a human um you know the interchange between our skin and the air and all of these different things and the number of bacteria that live inside us that make up our body that are also individual organisms you know like what does it even mean to be a singular animal or whatever right when it's a, it's mm. actually a whole complex swirl of things so it's hard for me to <laughs> uh to try to you know check any boxes or fill out any forms or anything like that just because um, there's just too much complexity for my brain to wrap my head around. So I, I don't like to lock myself in any kind of box at all. Mm -hmm. Cool. Cool. That's a really beautiful answer. Um, yeah. And I also really, one of the things that I love about you and appreciate about you as like a fellow person who like decided to reject conventional education, um, yeah, that's one thing that I just really appreciate about you and that you share about is like not going down that like super traditional route of traditional education because I didn't thrive there either. I was homeschooled for many years and then I briefly entered high school and I was like, I can't, I can't do this. Like I just, it doesn't work for yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, briefly, briefly attended college and then, yeah, it just like was a, a, an institution that I couldn't get behind and could not function in whatsoever and kind of had to forge my own path. So yeah, it's funny, you know, I recently, so I did try, I attempted college, you know, after I dropped out of high school and I took two courses at PCC when I was 19. One was, um, well, let me fast forward. So like a year ago, I was like, I wonder if you know, I've, I've never did a FAFSA. I, I, mean, I wonder if I could get like government funding and take a couple of writing class, the college classes just for fun, just to, just to hone some skills, you know. So I, I took a writing 121 at PSU and um, they wouldn't they wouldn't let me uh, get the, the funding that I needed because it said that I had uh, a GPA that was too low to get the government funding because I had flunked out of uh the term before, but the term before was 20 years ago. And <laughs> so I went and I looked, you know, and the two classes that I had flunked were Native American Indian history was the name of it. And the other one was um, anthropology, Native Americans of the Northwest Coast. And I had dropped both of those classes halfway through because I was more well read than the teachers on the most contemporary books, of, you know, and literature 
around it. And so I was arguing with the teachers the entire time about um, their knowledge and being like, actually, no, that's been disproven or no, this thing, this is actually what people are saying about this. And eventually I just was like, fuck college. And I dropped out of them or whatever. <laughs> you know? And it's just funny right. to like, to like 20 years later, go back and take this random course and then have them be like, actually, um, we can't do this because the last time you were here, uh, you dropped these courses or whatever, you know. Uh, but I actually really enjoyed the writing class. And it was funny, too, because I just took one just for, you know, for fun. And I love writing. So um, and I, I went in to learn how to do citations, which I never learned how to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I got exactly what I wanted out of that class. And, uh, you know, I appreciated that format. It was on Zoom, actually. So it was pretty easy to not have to, like, drag my ass out of bed and take a bus or something across town to the college campus and, you know, all that stuff. Like it made it pretty easy. Anyway, it was, it was really fun. I don't know if I'll do it again. Yeah. I've thought about dipping my toes into, uh, into taking some like writing classes through a college or something, but I don't know yet. I yeah. kind of like to protect my uneducated totally. form <laughs> of writing. Cause it feels mm -hmm. kind of, mm -hmm. it feels sacred. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Don't lose that. As a fully college-educated individual <laughs> with a bachelor's degree, I am here to tell you that college is a scam. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I support not going. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I just was like, I want to take some free classes because I never did a FAFSA, you know. So let's just go ahead and start diving into our conversation today, which is what I would like to explore is rewilding and how we can potentially rewild our folk magic and witchcraft and perhaps how those two intersect. And maybe they don't even intersect. Maybe they are, they're intimately intertwined. So I know that this is your most favorite question. Um, <laughs> and you know what's coming. I sense sarcasm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I do know what's coming. <laughs> yeah, you do. Okay. If you can tell us in short, because, you know, a lot of our listeners don't quite understand perhaps what rewilding is. And maybe they have like notions that it's like bushcraft or like ancestral skills. Because I think there's a lot of like, you know, I've taken courses with you. I've read your book, um, Rewild or Die. There's like this notion of what rewilding is. Can you explain to us or describe in short what exactly is rewilding to our listeners? I will try and fail, but um, <laughs> it's something that's really hard to explain in brief because it's such a transformative um, and in-depth analysis. And it goes against the majority of the way that we've been taught to look at the world and ourselves as people in the world. Mm -hmm. You introduced the, the, the term gas bagging um, this morning. I'm going to introduce another European or British term. I don't actually know if this is real or if it's just one of those words that like somebody created for Urban Dictionary. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but it's Takadiwampel. Yes. Takadiwampel is to travel with purpose to a yet undetermined destination. So it's, um, yeah, I don't know, you know, it's a contradiction, right? You can't purposely travel towards somewhere you don't know where you're going. Um, but that's exactly what, to me, rewilding is a, a cottywomple toward wildness. Um, wildness is a sort of undefinable, um, always shifting relationship that all living things and, you know, inanimate, 
animated li living things, however you define living things, everything that exists that's moving um, and participating in existence is essentially a form of wildness. So if we, mm -hmm. if we think of wildness as like a cloud, an ever shifting thing, if we take a picture of it in one moment, it's gonna look a certain way. But as soon as we take that picture, it shifts, it looks a different way. That's essentially you know, what's happening all the time with life. It's just constantly shifting. Ecosystems are in constant flux, um, but there are some sort of what I call transient baselines, which is also a sort of contradictory term, right? But mm -hmm. the baseline is always changing, but there's still sort of a constant steady ebb and flow, right? Like the shores of the ocean have an ebb and flow based on the cycles of the moon, but they also have a depth based on the cycles of the climate, right? With the different amount of fresh water frozen or not, um, that changes where the shoreline is. So there's a, but, but relatively it stays within these limits, right? Mm -hmm. And ecologies are the same way. So the other element of this, so, you know, basically how do humans fit into the ebb and flow of these constant changing systems? Where is mm -hmm. this transient baseline or can we find it again? Because for the last however many thousand years, there's been certain civilizations, certain cultures who have created or subsisted off of a type of relationship with the land that is inherently destructive and creates more disturbance than it does regeneration. Right. So in terms of evolution, you know, animals and plants have to um, fit into their ecosystems, like survival of the fit. How do you fit? Not how do you... Um, aggress over or dominate the ecosystem, but how do you fit in it? And in order to fit in something in the long run, the disturbances that you create have to be, have to have an equal amount of regeneration in the landscape that you're a part of. So mm -hmm. if you're taking something, you're gonna co-evolve with the things that you're taking. So they have a evolutionary response to your disturbance. The classic example of this is the predator prey relationship, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, foxes, predate on rabbits. So rabbits, in order to survive in the long run, breed like rabbits, right? <laughs> that expression mm -hmm. to breed like rabbits comes from the rabbit's adaptive response to the disturbance of predation, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's co-evolution. Without a fox or without predation, the rabbits would not have adapted or evolved to have that level of reproduction, right? Mm -hmm. and so that's an adaptive response. So everything within an ecosystem is adapt is constantly adapting and changing with one another. Coevolution is happening all the time between different species, um, and in relation to their environment. So you could also think of coevolution um, in terms of climate, in terms of weather patterns, geography. Coevolution. If you, they don't necessarily call it coevolution because it's not you know cold air is not considered alive. But for somebody that's an animist, you might think of it as coevolution in terms of you know, growing fur to stay warmer as the climate cools, right? Like mm -hmm. that's not co-evolution. That's just natural. That's just adaptation. But for me, I'm thinking of it as co-evolution with a transitory climate, right? Mm -hmm. So rewilding is an attempt to sort of understand where humans can rest within an ecosystem and embrace that wildness, embrace that transient baseline, embrace co-evolution with all of our um, living and non-living you know, anim in, uh, community members in an animate ecosystem. Um, the element that comes into play here is trying to understand how we did that before 
agriculture and domestication. So, right. um, you know, what, the main kind of component of jump, going down the rewilding rabbit hole is what's called the environments of evolutionary adaptations. What are the environments that humans have existed in and how did we evolve to be the way we are today? And how did we live in those ecosystems without causing the sixth mass extinction? And then what changed? What are the ways that we're living now that have caused this extinction? And mm -hmm. so you could look at rewilding as essentially an embrace of wildness, a cottywample to travel with purpose to a yet unknown definition of rewilding or of wildness rather. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. That's that's a great description of what rewilding is. And I really appreciate how you described that. And like you said, you know, there's um, so I think the important thing to think about here with rewilding is that it's not actually a thing that you do. It's a context mm -hmm. in which you do things. If your context is that I'm setting this intention to embrace wildness, then anything you do under that could be a, an attempt at rewilding, could look like rewilding. Whereas some, you know, ancestral skills could be rewilding or it could be a weekend hobby for somebody who doesn't give a shit about rewilding. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the thing, right? Like any of these things, um, they could be rewilding or they could not be. So the problem with the way people label rewilding now is that they, you know, they're using um, ancestral skills. Practitioners are using rewilding as a synonym for ancestral skills, but it's not. It's not a synonym. Mm -hmm. So um, and that's frustrating. You know, or it's not a it's not a synonym for forest bathing or earthing or mindfulness, all of those things could be something you do under your practice of rewilding. Um, but then them and of themselves are not necessarily rewilding because it's mm -hmm. the context, it's the framework in which you're doing it, not the act of the thing that you're doing. Right. Yeah. So maybe you've already answered this, but the question that's kind of coming to mind for me right now is like, would you say that rewilding is a way of being? Yeah, exactly. Totally. Yeah. Okay, it's right. It's a way of yeah. being, seeing, and moving through the world. Right, yeah. So, you know, like rewilding, like uh, in your courses that you've taught, like there's been like an explosion of it. It's become really popular. And um, people do tend to slap this label like on it, um, you know, that if you're doing these certain things, you are doing rewilding. But it does seem to be, from what I've learned from you, it's a way of being, a way of viewing the world and how you interact with it rather than it being like something that you just do on the weekend. Exactly. And that's that's kind of how I view witchcraft. You know, it's like it's a way of being. It's a way of viewing the world. And that's why I think like rewilding and witchcraft are like intimately intertwined because Absolutely. it's like you don't just do witchcraft on the weekend maybe you do but it is also like a way of being and a way totally. of how we inter interact with the world i i do feel like witchcraft and rewilding do have a lot of similarities like britain is saying about kind of wanting to join this ebb and flow instead of trying to stand outside of it which has not been going well for us exactly. lately this yeah. idea of trying to remove ourselves from the ebb and flow but i think that witchcraft really seeks to to rejoin it and harmonize with it which i think is important
Um, well, I know that you're going to ask me another question, and this is going to what I was going to say is to, definitely going to be a part of an, an answer to other questions. <laughs> so oh, I don't know. Okay. I don't know if I want to just jump into that, or if I want to like have it be a, a part of whatever you know questions that you end up asking. So I'm trying to like zip it and you know not just like okay. go off, go like. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I think that does segue really well into our next question, and that is like. What do you f- wish that like folk magic practitioners and witches knew about rewilding? You know, I we talk a lot or I have talked a lot about this in my social media sphere of how capitalism has really come into witchcraft and how it's about there's so much extraction within folks' witchcraft practices is about amassing the tools, it's about buying the exotic herbs, etc. You know? So, yeah, what do you wish, like, from what you have seen and what you've experienced, what do you wish people or practitioners knew about rewilding and, and how it relates to their practice? It's interesting thinking about the all the different the ways in which um, witchcraft can manifest. I think, you know, I, I keep I've been lately. I, <laughs> I go through phases, right, where I'm like really excited about different things and then I'll and then I'll get annoyed with it and walk away from it or whatever. And, you know, of one course. of the things. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, for a long time after reading, you know, Ishmael and some other things and, and recognizing that um, civilization and the way that I define it and um, the iron age, basically anything after the agricultural, you know, Neolithic, basically anything after the Neolithic, I kind of was just like, fuck everything after the Neolithic <laughs> because that's farming. And that's like, you know, it, it is this, it's this, this separation, right. Um, between the way that we're subsisting and the sort of degenerative, um, aspects of humans interacting with the landscape. Um, and there's this, um, there's this Joseph Campbell quote, I think, where he says, uh, I'm going to butcher it, but in The Power of Myth, he was talking about how we invented ritual, essentially, to and, and the role of like a, a medicine person or a shaman or a witch or whatever is to put the human mind back in accord with the body and the human body in accord with the way nature dictates. Mm. Something, along, something along those lines, right? Mm-hmm. And that that's this, that's this role. Um, so I've thought a lot about that over the years, right? Like there's, there's this acknowledged sort of separation, something separated us from this understanding and being a, an innate part of this transient baseline or harmony or whatever we want to call it. Um, and it became there, it became necessary for human culture to create ritual in order to put us back into accord with this system. Meanwhile, there's this other guy, he's a psychologist, um, his name's Dr. Leonard Martin. I interviewed him on my podcast and he has this thing called delayed return compensation theory. (laughs) It's very clinic, very clinical sounding, right? Um, But what his theory is, so in terms of the environments of evolutionary adaptations, we see this trans, uh, this is a term coined by an anthropologist named James Woodburn in the 1970s, where he realized there was this big difference between um, hunter-gatherers and horticulturalists and um, all around the world that were being studied. And the difference was what he called immediate return societies and delayed return societies. Mm-hmm. And in immediate return societies, people get their food right away and they eat it. There's no like 
long-term food storage, maybe some caching for seasonality. Uh, but in the long run, people are uh, mobile and they don't store their food. They go out and they capture it or they collect it and then they come home, cook it and eat it. There's no refrigeration. There's no drying of food. There's no long-term preservation. And so um, in that kind of society, you don't have to think about like protecting your food or the energy that you expended to get that food from other people, from animals, you know, mice that want to eat the grain in the granary. Um, mm -hmm. And so without that food storage, your food is just always present in your environment surrounding you. And mm -hmm. the theory is that that is how people evolved was through this sort of mindset of not needing to think about or protect um, long-term existence. And so there's this idea that a large part of our psyche is built around immediate return um, ways of living. And that when we start to store food and have to think long-term, we haven't fully adapted to that or it changes, it creates a, a disconnect. And so that's Dr. Martin's um, theory is what he calls delayed return compensation. So because we're living in a way that isn't um, necessarily aligned with our biology or the way that we've, um, you know, our biological uh, adaptation, we've created mm -hmm. a cultural response to it that he calls delayed return compensation theory. And essentially he, he thinks that all religion and culture and stuff like that is in a large, a large part, a response to this sort of separation. And so I think about that as a as a really fascinating kind of way of reframing my perception of like the the Neolithic and everything post the post Neolithic. So you know I rejected paganism, I rejected um, anything that wasn't just like an, what I considered animism, right? Because I thought it was all um, just like civilized agricultural bullshit or whatever, right? Right. <laughs> Um, and my friends and I, you know, friends of mine have argued with me over the years, like, no, there's still like obvious elements of, in all of the Iron Age cultures that are about trying to compensate for this. So I think thinking about it in that in that sort of compensation theory and being like, oh, OK, we opened a Pandora's box with this. And now we have to create culture that puts us back in accord. And the people who do that kind of thing are the witches and the shamans or medicine people. Right. Like those are people who um, that's a role that they serve within a society is to keep people in accord or in harmony with our environments. So it kind of re, it, it made me sort of look at things in a different light. And so I started um, looking at uh, Iron Age peoples and, you know, heathenry is a big thing, um, you know, within like sort of, I don't know if it's technically considered a subsection of neo-paganism or something along those lines. But um, when I think about, I started looking into heathenry just, you know, uh, I was exploring a lot of different things, particularly mm -hmm. like white, white supremacy and, and its right. infiltration into a lot of these things. And um, I started to learn about uh, the heaths. You mm. know about the heaths? I do not. Describe so them. The heaths are a geological formation that are all part of northern Europe and parts right. of the, the Northern Isles. They're the heaths, they're uh, an ecosystem. Well, yeah. the ecosystem that is the heaths is non-grazable. You can't have pastoral animals in there, large scale, and non-agricultural, you can't grow food there. And so when the Romans were colonizing and basically, you know, the word colonize comes from the Roman word colere, which means to till the soil. 
So to colonize is to force other people into the agricultural taxation regime that was the Roman Empire. So the heathens were literally people living in non-taxable landscapes. Mm-hmm. And so the Romans couldn't colonize those places because they couldn't bring agriculture to them. They couldn't bring their religion. They couldn't bring Christianity, right? So the heathen people were a, a culture and they, they maintained that type of a culture in part because they had escaped to the sort of, or were living in the places that were outside of the grasp of agricultural colonization and state colonization. So this comes back into, I think, you know, the, what do I wish people who are practicing witchcraft knew about rewilding? I think, um, you know, that there is uh, this problem of separation between yes. people and and our land, right? And that that's uh, inherent. The inherent role is to bring back that balance. I think most people practicing have some sort of idea about that. They understand that, right? Um, so it's not necessarily that, but that it's also in part the rejection of the state and taxation regimes, and that that balance comes from state evasion, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Right? Um, and I think I was really turned on to this idea and, and started looking for it after reading James C. Scott's book, The Art of Not Being Governed, which um, is about the collection of, of cultures that exist in the mountain ranges, not just the Himalayas, but the mountain ranges of Southeast Asia that had no real cultural, uh, not real, whatever that means. They ha- they had no unified um, cultural identity until very recently. So the uh, Mian, I think is what they're called, or, or uh, yeah, the Mian and the Hmong, um, those are recent like cultural names they've given themselves after mm-hmm. state exploitation and oil allowed themselves to like tax people in these mountains. But in, for the, in these mountain ranges, for a large part, the geography of the mountain ranges kept these people free of state control. And so they had a diversity of languages, customs, religions, and practices um, of subsistence that prevented them from being taxed because they basically didn't grow grains. And so this, and because they were in a place where the state, it was hard for the state to access, they didn't go after them to get them. And so they were able to sort of maintain this like anti-state transient society Mm-hmm. And when I when I learned about that, I was like, where are all the other geographies? Right. And so in thinking about like paganism, you know, pagan just meant rural back right. back when it was first pagan just meant the rural people. Right. Um, and so, again, you think about like, what's the the stretch of the state? And, um, you know, as much as I. It's interesting to look at parallels of, of culture. Right. So pagan was considered backwards the way rural people are considered backwards today in the same kind of way, right? Like people in the city, they think that they're enlightened um, in certain ways and that people out in the country are like idiots because they're following some older idea or something along those right, lines. Right, right. And it's essentially exactly the same. But as somebody who's from the city, I'm still, I'm grappling with this because I think that, you know, the rural people who are watching Fox News and, um, you know, going to church and believe in Jesus and all this different stuff, like it's hard for me to reconcile that I'm not necessarily doing the same thing that the Romans were doing to pagans um, you know what I mean? Anyway, that's a whole other sort of it is, yeah, <laughs> a whole, a whole other rabbit hole, right? That. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> but just this idea that that um, you know the 
that to me, if if we look at witchcraft as a sort of um, as a medium between connecting people who have essentially lost their way in some regard um, of using witchcraft to reconnect people to this sort of um, harmony, but not just through um, the cultural narratives and mythology and, and rituals and things, but also through literal subsistence practice of not participating in like grain-based, essentially drudgery or slavery or taxation, right? That, mm-hmm. that to me, that um, those ways of life, the monocultures and these different things, those are the expression of the disconnect. And the more we enact those, the more disconnected we are. So to look at witchcraft as essentially a way of reconnecting people with a shifting um, harmonious baseline of regeneration and disturbance, then it, it innately is a rejection of hierarchy and agriculture. Not, you know, agriculture can mean a lot of different things to people, but not monoculture, not state societies, um, and that it that it it should be rooted specifically in a place and connected to the actual subsistence practices of that place, not mm-hmm. just. Um, yeah. So anyway, that that's kind of what. Uh, do, do you have any any questions or thoughts around any of that stuff? Oh my god! Well, I have so many thoughts um, and so much. I don't even really know where to begin because that was a lot, a lot of really good stuff. And you know, I try to like a lot of what you had shared. I kind of like gently, or sometimes I'll throw a hot take out on Twitter about this. And folks always seem to want to defend capitalism or defend the status quo within their practice. And, and it just, it boggles my mind. So it almost kind of like, sounds like we need to go find our own Heaths. Oh yeah. That's fucking awesome. That's the point. Like, (laughs) exactly. So, I mean, you know, not to like, I got this question recently on Instagram. Somebody was like, what is a good, what is the best source to learn about animism? And I was like, go take a walk, get out there in the land, like go explore your landscape. There's no textbook, I think, that can adequately describe how animism, what it is and how it works. Like you have to experience it. Um, And, you know, I'm going to I'm jumping all over the place here because ADHD brain. (laughs) Um, And it also sounds like one of the other things that you brought up was being in service to your community, community, facilitating space for people to be reconnected. And that's one thing that I have really criticized um, in modern pop culture witchcraft is this like this level of narcissism. It's has become a really self-centered practice. Like, what can I get? What can I do for myself? And obviously, like witchcraft also comes about as need. Um, and what we need in our lives. And we do need to have like our bases covered and whatnot. But also what about service? What about being in service to the land and our community as a whole? So yeah, those are just some of the things that I picked out (laughs) that popped into my head with what you shared. But yeah, we got to find our own heaths. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, that's the thing that surprised me so much in, in that research was that 
Um, when I think about religions in particular, I think about them, you know, like Christianity or something being completely removed from the actual physical reality that we exist in, mm-hmm. you know, and that Christianity is not really an earth based religion at all. It's like, uh, you know, it's, when you die, you just go to heaven. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so there's no connection to place. You could take the religion and put it anywhere and it's essentially completely removed from, I mean, I also don't want to dis, you know, I, there are lots of Christians out there that are like mm-hmm. rewilding Christianity that do see it as a, yes. a, a rich practice of being in place. Right. Like, and I think mm-hmm. it's important to, to boost that idea as well because of the number of Christians that exist today in the world, um, as well as, you know, all the other religions, just trying to, um, reframe and rewild their own religions, right? And see and, and go back further and see how those have the potential to connect them to a place. Um, right. And to be in service to the place. But when I think of religion, even just like when I started researching about like heathenry, right, is like considered a religion. It's not considered a occupation. <laughs> and yeah. that to me was and, and that to me is the interesting thing, right? Is that it's not it's not linked to the geography of place that the word originates from, right? It's to be a heathen is to live on the heath, to be of the heath. It's not just the practices of the beliefs that you have around that, right? You can't take heathenry out of the heath. It becomes something else. It's no longer mm-hmm. heathenry, right? Um, you could rewild, you could create, you could take the ideas and framework and do it somewhere else and integrate, but it would no longer be called heathenry per se, right? Right. Um, and so that's, right. I guess that's what I, that's the, the biggest thing for me is that any kind of um, spiritual practice or, or ritualistic practice that is not literally, literally connected to our subsistence, like how we are eating, how we are, what our disturbance is, right? That's the, okay. Yeah. That's, that, that's the key, right? How we're disturbing the environment is what the ritual is for, Right. Like ritual, like if we look at that, the, the harmonious thing, right? If we look at how, you know, Joseph Campbell's quote that the, you know, shamans or medicine people are to put the mind in accord with the body and the body in accord with the way nature dictates. Like, how are we disturbing the environment? The rituals that we do are meant to act as a regenerative aspect of that disturbance. Mm-hmm. So if we're just doing ritual without it any in any way really connected to the actual physical disturbances that we're creating in order to exist then it's it's just kind of doing it it's like it's it's like half of it without the other half mm-hmm. it's essentially like going to church and thinking you know being like thinking i'm just going to go to heaven i'm like disconnected from my place it might feel great in my body it might you know i might have a religious experience in church without you know it being connected to my subsistence at all um because those are just aspects of being embodied in a in a cultural framework and ritual you know i'm thinking of like people who experience the holy ghost or something in terms of like christianity or or me going and and being in a sweat lodge you know a, an appropriative sweat lodge that i did in the past and having experiences there but the irony for me was that i was doing these ceremonies and none of it was tied to my actual existence at all it was solely um and and when i say existence i'm literally talking about the things i'm killing in order for me to continue to be alive Mm -hmm. Um, which is why i think you know so many rituals involve like killing animals and eating them because it's literally 
uh, you know, that, that practice turned over in, uh, you know, and it's kind of expressed fully in, in that moment, you know? Um, I don't know if that's making any sense, but I just feel like the being in service part is, it has to have physical application in the physical world. It's both, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, like, I don't, I don't perceive of a duality between spirit and, and the spirit world and the physical the physical world. So when I see people doing things that they're calling spiritual that have no actual application within the physical world, it's it's problematic for me because I'm like, what's the point of that if it's not actually physically involved in all of your senses and your, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, it's hard to it's hard for me to articulate it. No, I like I can feel what you're saying. <laughs> it is difficult. I, it's like, it is difficult to articulate one thing kind of like, okay, I'm just kind of fixated on this whole Heath thing. Um, it makes me wonder of like, what are the names that we could have? Like what, what is my Heath? Totally. Is it the sage? Is it the sagebrush step? Because that's where I live. You know, is it like the mountains? Like, what is it? Yeah. <laughs> I want to know. Yeah. No, that was great. I'm really appreciating what you're sharing with us here. And also to our listeners, please have a pen and notebook. Take notes. This is a this is a note taking episode. OK, so this is another another big question, although kind of a simple question. How can witches rewild their practice? Like what can they because I'm sure a lot of folks are like listening to this and thinking like, well, what can I do? I think you have kind of already shared some of the things that folks can begin doing. Um, but yeah, how can folks rewild their, their practice? Do you think? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting, you know, for me to try to, um, I mean, every context is different for every person. Um, you know, I, lately I've been really self-conscious about my Americanism and gi- giving advice to people on a, on a podcast that are listening from all over the world, you know, at least we're right. all speaking English or understand English. So that's already a, a fraught context there, but that everybody's living in a different context. So what I can do is kind of speak to my own uh, context and, and no one else's, but maybe people can glean something from that and apply it to where they are. Um, you know, even mm-hmm. though it's Americanism in part, most of the English speaking countries are colonial countries. So we have that in common. Um, most of them have, you know, colonized people or displaced people or committed genocide. Many of us have um, ancestors who participated in all of those things and were also colonized at one point in time. So in that context, it's like, how do you rewild your practice wherever you are? And like you were, you know, what's your Heath? I think that's a really, that's a fucking great question. And that's what, that, that's the question people need to be asking. Um, and it makes me think too of like, you know, people in, neo-pagans who give offerings to old old world pagan gods that are living and the people themselves are living in the United States, you know, like in, in old paganism, um, the, the gods were actually like located in the, the ground, no, not like the universal ground. Like there were actual locations where you would go where the gods lived. They lived in specific yeah. places. Place-based, um, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, if you were to enact old school paganism, and, and that's, again, one of those things where I'm like, if you're not interacting with the place where you are and the subsistence practices right where you are, you're not actually connecting to this thread of what the what they were doing in those other times, right? 
mm-hmm. um, you're you're enacting something else, which is not necessarily I'm not necessarily negative. Um, but if you were to enact like the I, that that same idea of like um, gods or spirits of a place, what would that look like? You know, if if in old in old pagan communities, if you traveled somewhere else, you'd be giving offerings to the spirits or gods of that place, not yep. the place where you just came from. Mm-hmm. So if you were to if you were to do that here or wherever it is that you live now, you would want to be offering and communicating with the spirits of the place where you're standing, not Thor or whatever. <laughs> I don't know, you know, what I mean, or right. Odin um, or Woden or whatever, you know, I mean, that, and that's OK. People do that, too. I, that's fine. But, you know, um, you know, shout out to to the other spirits of, you know, that we've all in, in different places where we've existed in the past or whatever. Right. And still re- acknowledging mm-hmm. those things. Um, but what are the what are the direct spirits or entities or elements that live right where you are? Well, there's a challenge in that, which is that, you know, um, you might end up culturally appropriating. There's already people who have relationships with those or who had historical uh, relationships with those places. So, you know, for me, um, and and here they didn't have gods, right? There was no such thing as gods. Mm-hmm. Um, they might have had more place-based, you know, spiritual things that I'm unaware of that I have not been educated on or mm-hmm. that are lost because of the genocide that happened and the diseases that happened so rapidly here. A lot of that cultural um, stuff might be lost. Uh, but a lot of it is uh, different elements of it are present, I should say. Um, so there's sort of this challenge, right, of... Um, being in a, in, on the one hand, a new location that has no stories and a location that has thousands of years worth of stories that may be, or may not be available to you. Mm -hmm. Right. Even if you're a native, you might not have access to those stories anymore, um, through an elder or whatever, you know, there's definitely like ways of getting access to those stories, but all of them involve participating with actually being on the land. So it's like you were yep. saying, you know, um, actually going out and being on the land as a way of interacting with it. I think that there's sort of two sides to that as well. Like there's any any cultural framework essentially has an agenda, right? So to to separate yourself from a cultured ritual, to look at things sort of bare bones, non-linguistic, non-culture, you know, like one of the one of my friends who's always like talking about. She's like, you want to, she's, I don't know, I don't know what her beliefs are, but she's basically somebody I consider an elder, you know, and she's like, you want to get spiritual, just go sit at the base of a tree with no food for four days and see what happens. You know what I mean? Like, you don't need, you don't need drugs. You don't need religion. Just go sit at the base of a tree for four days without any food and see what happens, you know? Um, And so I think about that a lot with some of these practices. At the same time, though, if you were raised in a, in a culture where you have a particular lens of viewing the natural world, you're going to take that lens with you. And it might, Mm -hmm. it might actually go away after a couple of days, you know, of not speaking and stuff like that. Um, And I did one of those types of vision, quote unquote, vision quests in my youth. I went and I did that when I was 21 and it was kind of a shitty experience to be fully honest. Um, Later I, I was part of another vision quest ceremony that was in part Lakota, but non-denominational in a sense. And there was Mm -hmm. a lot more culture and support and 
community around the whole experience that com but but it was still pretty much non-dogmatic there was not a lot of like um specific lakota cultural stuff in there for example but i was just a supporter for my friend who was doing it and it was a way more powerful experience even for me just as a participant as a supporter than even my own <laughs> like vision quest was and a really mm -hmm. powerful experience for her so i do think that there are and this is where i think you know having a understanding um, what role which witches and you know priests and priestesses and these different people can play in this kind of connection is not being the medium through the interaction, but creating the basket for the interaction to happen, creating the cultural space. You know, it's like being a midwife, right? Like a midwife isn't uh, creating the baby or whatever. They're just helping the woman the process you know, yeah they're yeah. just helping the process right um facilitating exactly and so i think that um having a cultural process can be embracing of traditions of the place that are ancient and without being appropriative um, especially if it's in collaboration with um and also embracing you know the ancestral relationships that were had in a particular place and how those transition to a different place and then mm -hmm. how those relate back to this idea of being on your own heath, subsisting from that place and having those rituals connect to how exactly what kinds of our disturbances are and how our rituals are creating more regenerative parts for that ritual mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. or for that community, you know? Um, I mean, this is going to, I want to go now into a whole segue of like Martin Brechtel's work, which is super important and, and does this specifically. It's very much along the lines of, um, you know, the, the Mayan concept of, of spiritual debt is very much along the lines of what I'm talking about. Uh, and there's a great interview that I recommend, you know, everybody read that's um, from, it's called Saving the Indigenous Soul. It's an interview with Martin Brechtel that Derek Jensen did in like 2000 uh, for The Sun magazine. Mm -hmm. And it yeah. just goes into a lot of the stuff and it's just, it's just epic in that regard. Yeah. I will definitely put that in the show notes. Cause when I took your rewild one-on-one course, um, that was part totally. of the readings yeah. that yeah. you had shared with us and, yeah. um, really changed my whole framework and understanding of like, yeah, spiritual debt and whatnot. But yeah, you, so you touched on a couple of things that will segue us well into the next question around appropriation and, you know, how witches can rewild their practice is by connecting to the land that they, that they live on. Hey, y'all. So that concludes part one of two for this episode. Stay tuned next week for part two. And remember, do witchcraft. Support for this podcast comes from our listeners. If you would like to support Invoking Witchcraft with a one-time donation, please go to invokingwitchcraft.com backslash donate or if you'd like to become a premium listener, join the coven at invokingwitchcraft.com backslash coven. There you'll get access to our exclusive Facebook group for discussion and connection, as well as access to occasional workshops. We hope to see you there.